If you, uh, if you have your Bibles with me, you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. And before we get back into the verses, we just read them. I'm going to be using the NIV here this morning. But before we get back into the verses, I want to give a bit of an introduction to Matthew. Now, our Bibles are divided into two main sections. There's the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament, the portion that comes before Jesus. The New Testament, the portion that comes after Jesus. And the New Testament, those 27 books that come after Jesus, they describe a new way of living. Jesus fulfills all of the prophecies about the coming kingdom. He fulfills all of the prophecies about the Messiah. He fulfills the promises of the prophets in the Old Testament, and he gives us an example of those fulfillments, but he also teaches us a new way to live. So throughout the New Testament, especially in the Gospels, the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are four biographies of Jesus, four stories of the life of Jesus told from four different perspectives. And we get in those biographies the story of Jesus as he recreates a people for God. In the Old Testament, there is a people of God, the nation of Israel, In the New Testament, there is a new people of God. In the same way that in the Old Testament, God called 12 tribes as his people. In the New Testament, Jesus calls 12 disciples, a new people of God. And in the same way that God made promises to his people in the Old Testament, there's a new promise, a new covenant, a new testament that Jesus initiates. He starts that for us. He invites us into the promises of the new covenant. And that's what Matthew is introducing here in this section. Matthew is a brilliant teacher. I think that for many believers, just that fact, coming to terms with that fact, will change the way that you read the Bible. Matthew is not just a regular guy just throwing together random observations about what Jesus did and said. Matthew is brilliant. God chose him, God equipped him, God inspired him, and what Matthew writes is exactly what God wants us to understand about the life of Jesus and the people of God. Matthew does that in a really brilliant way here. The book of Matthew, you can divide it into three sections. Matthew writes it in three parts. The first section, Matthew 1.1 to Matthew 4.16, that's the first section. That's what we call the preparation section. We get the story of Jesus' birth and the story of the calling of the first apostles as Jesus prepares to start his public ministry. So then from 417 to 1620, from Matthew 417 to 1620, that's the middle section. We call that the preaching or the proclamation section. That's where we see Jesus out there publicly serving, doing his miracles, doing his teaching. It's in that middle section. That's the long section. And then the final section, 1621 to 2820, to the end of the book, We call that the 
passion section. It just happens to have three Ps. I don't really like that kind of preaching, but it's preparation, passion, and uh, preparation, uh, preparation, preaching, and passion. You've got three Ps. That last section describes the events leading up to and including the death and resurrection of Jesus. Matthew divides it that way himself. And you can read in 417 and 1620 the way he makes a transition in each of those sections to the next part. But there's another structure as well that Matthew has included in his book, and it's important for reading and understanding the verses we just heard. Matthew includes in his book, he structures his book around five sermons. We call them discourses. There's five big speeches or sermons of Jesus in the book of Matthew. Five of them. And Matthew has structured the whole book around them. So you get narrative and discourse. Narrative, discourse, narrative, discourse. That is, you have a story about what Jesus is doing, and then you have the teaching of Jesus, and then you have more story about what's happening. And the narrative section, the story section, connects to the teaching before or after. Matthew has done that really well, connected the events to the teachings. The first of those sermons, the first of those discourses, is this one. It is what we just read. It's the, Well, it starts that way. It's called the Sermon on the Mount, and it's from Matthew 5 to 7. Matthew 5 to 7 is the Sermon on the Mount, probably the most famous sermon ever recorded. It begins with those words that we read, Matthew 5, 1 to 16. It goes on to chapter 7. We're just looking at that first section today. But you, you, you noticed, I imagine, that the theme of Jesus' preaching in those verses, as it will be throughout the entire book of Matthew and in all of the Gospels, what Jesus preaches mostly about is the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus proclaims. What does he teach about? He teaches about the kingdom. That's what he's teaching. So it's really important for us as readers of Matthew, if we want to be students of Jesus, learning from Jesus how to live, we need to have some clue, some idea about what Matthew means when he says kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God. Here, Matthew mostly uses the phrase kingdom of heaven. So, you should know that Matthew is not here talking about what happens when you die. Now, the kingdom of heaven includes that. But what Matthew is describing here, and you can look at it in Matthew 4, 17, this is what Jesus is describing. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It has come near. Here it is. It's Jesus himself, the king, who has come down and is standing in front of the crowds and says, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Here it is. He's not primarily talking about what happens when you die. He's talking about the way that God is transforming the world, that God is in the process of renewing all things. He will say that at the end of Revelation. Jesus says, behold, I am making all things new. Jesus is righting all of the wrongs. He is undoing all of the corruption. He's unweaving persecution and oppression and sickness and death from the fabric of the world. Jesus is right now making everything new. The kingdom is coming. One day it will be fully here. 
That's only at the second coming. Only when Jesus returns will evil finally be done and suffering is done and sadness and sorrow is done. But we don't have to wait until then to live the way that Jesus teaches. In fact, he gives us a way of being in the world, a way of being the people of God that Jesus is calling, a way of being that people here to demonstrate the kingdom, to benefit from the life of the kingdom, from the blessedness of the kingdom. Jesus teaches us how to live. In fact, that's what it means to be a Christian. It is to be a disciple of Jesus. Are you learning from Jesus how to live? You can do that. You can trust that Jesus knows how to live. Maybe when you think about Jesus, the first thing that comes to mind are are Jesus' power and his mercy or his love. That Jesus is somebody who is really strong and Jesus is somebody who is really kind. And that's true. Those are obviously very important attributes of Jesus. But if that's all we had in Jesus, somebody who's really strong and really kind, it would not be enough. You wouldn't trust your way of living to somebody who was just really strong and really kind. If you're going to be the disciple of someone, if you're going to learn from someone how to live, is it not also important that they know what they're talking about? That this person be intelligent. Jesus, in fact, is, of course, the smartest person who has ever lived. He knows what he's talking about. When Jesus performs a miracle, he makes dead flesh into living flesh. It's, it's not as if he's waving a magic wand and I didn't know that was going to happen. No. Jesus knows all of the biological processes necessary for dead flesh to become living flesh. He made those cells. He knows all of the chemical processes necessary for the transformation of water into wine, and he can do it. He is the most brilliant astronomer and philosopher and historian and artist, chemist, physician, and physicist who has ever lived. He knows what he's talking about. But more than just science and history and math, Jesus knows how to live, how to navigate life in this world, what to do with conflict, how to manage your priorities, what to do with your money and your time, how to deal with suffering and offenses. Jesus knows how to live. We are disciples of Jesus, if we are learning from Jesus how to live. You can trust that he knows how to live. You can make him your teacher. You can genuinely learn the very best way of living from Jesus, and he has the very best way of living. There is not a better way of living than the one that Jesus demonstrates and proclaims. He knows how to live. We are amateurs. He knows. He gives us a picture of that way of living here in Matthew chapter 5. It's a picture which is so different from the regular way the world works. And so the 
blessedness that Jesus describes here, they are all unexpected blessednesses. They're unexpected because the kind of people who Jesus will say are blessed here in the Beatitudes are not the kind of people who are blessed by the regular way the world works. That's what Jesus is calling our attention to, that life in his kingdom is blessed. And it's blessed in a very different way from the regular way the world works. That will be the theme of the Beatitudes. Let's look again at Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. This is not Jesus with a megaphone standing on a chair. This is Jesus sitting down on the hillside. You know, if it weren't a camera here, I, I, I wish I could sit down and, and finish this for you. This is Jesus sitting down in front of the crowds, just talking to them about, life, about living. His disciples came to him. So you can imagine the crowds are there. Lots of people. And we're going to see in, this, in these chapters that lots of people are there to see Jesus do miracles. They want to hear the hopefulness and they want to hear the, 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 this amazing teaching that they've been hearing about in these earlier chapters. And his disciples, the people who are already convinced that he is the Messiah, they're crowding to the front. And Jesus starts to speak. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That is so counterintuitive. That's not the way the world works. Jesus says that the poor in spirit are blessed. Now, sometimes when we read the Beatitudes, we can be tempted to think of them as a list of attributes that we are intended to acquire, but that is not what's going on in the Beatitudes. This isn't a list of characteristics that you're supposed to acquire for yourself. Well, blessed are the poor in spirit, so i got to figure out how to be poor in spirit. No, you don't. That's not the point here. This person who is poor in spirit is not, they aren't blessed because they are poor in spirit. It's not their condition that makes them blessed. They're blessed because they're in the kingdom. Despite being poor in spirit. In the world, in the regular way the world works, the poor in spirit are not blessed. The poor in spirit are trampled on. The poor in spirit are ignored. The poor in spirit have no hope. In fact, Luke, in his version of this message, he just says, blessed are the poor. Blessed are the poor. Either way, it's not because they are poor that they are blessed. It's because they are in the kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who experience sadness. Blessed are the sad. Your road will eventually lead to sadness. Maybe it's there now. Maybe you're in a season now of poorness of spirit, of sadness, depression, anxiety, a sense of inadequacy feeling of exhaustion or exasperation. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Not because you're sad, but because in the kingdom there is genuine satisfaction even for the poor in spirit. The 
presence of God is with us in the kingdom. He is the source of our satisfaction. We enter into this new life in the kingdom. Not blessed is the person who whips himself up into an excited state of happiness all the time or who pretends that they're happy all the time. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's a different way of thinking about the world. Jesus is giving us a new way of thinking about blessedness. So here he is sitting on the hillside, and he starts with this very unexpected statement. Blessed are the poor in spirit. He continues with another unexpected statement. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. How could mourning be blessed? Another way to translate the makarios, the Greek for blessed here, is happy is the one. And that's what we translate it in Turkish, in fact, is nemutlu. How happy is the one who mourns? Blessed is the one who mourns. What do you mean, blessed is the one who mourns Jesus? The regular way the world works has no way of genuinely satisfying the poor in spirit or the mourner. But the kingdom of God has a way of satisfying the poor in spirit. The kingdom of God has a way of satisfying, of comforting the mourner. In the regular way the world works, the mourner is left with hopelessness, but in the kingdom, the mourner is comforted. Blessed are you who mourn. And you will be one day among the mourners. We all are. Blessed are you who mourn. Not because you are mourning. It's not as if Jesus is not claiming that to, to mourn is a good thing. That even those who mourn are blessed in the kingdom. The presence of God is there. The kingdom of God has a way of satisfying our souls that the world cannot do. There's another dimension to this that many commentators want to sometimes emphasize that um, this idea of mourning in the Old Testament is also often associated with repentance, and that's true. So we might think about mourning our sinfulness, mourning our own mistakes. I don't think that Jesus is only talking about that, but that can be included here, that I, I can mourn my own sinfulness as part of my repentance and see that. That's maybe easier to see how that can be a source of blessedness. Blessed are those who mourn. Mourning for the things that have happened to you. Mourning for the things that have happened around you. Mourning for the things that you have done. Blessed are those who mourn. Jesus wants to comfort you. There is comfort for the mourner in the kingdom. Come into the kingdom. This is an invitation into a new way of living. Come and find real satisfaction for your soul. It is found in the kingdom, not in the regular way the world works. The kingdom is the source of living. Come and find comfort here in the kingdom. He continues again 
unexpectedly saying, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. What does meek mean? Meek means somebody who is shy, gentle, humble. It's the opposite of assertive or aggressive. In the regular way the world works, blessed is the person who grabs what he wants. Blessed is the person who schemes and plots and hustles to get it. In the kingdom, even the meek are blessed. This is not a sermon about grabbing your blessing, about claiming money or health or status. This is about a new way of living in the kingdom. Come into the kingdom and find blessedness in God. Blessed are the meek. They will inherit the earth. In a world full of corruption, where it feels like the only way to get ahead is to hustle even if it means outside the lines of ethics or law. Get what you want. Jesus gives a different way. Blessed are the meek. I was in Tajikistan recently and confronted with the reality of the corruption in the world. Who are those who inherit the earth? Those are, those are the ones who, who know the right people or who are born into money or who are able to finagle and scheme and get what they want. I was pulled over. My friend was driving in Dushanbe in the capital. Our car was pulled over. Police officer came and demanded a fine, you know, for an indefinite sort of offense. And you have no choice but to pay whatever the fine that the officer is asking there in that moment. And the officer is going to invent an amount, although there's sort of a standard amount. I experienced something similar when I was driving from Lagos to Ibadan a couple years ago. There's sort of a standard fine. You know, it's an understood fee. Yeah. And I, I was resentful. You know, how dare he demand? There's no evidence. I'm not going to get a document or a receipt. There's no, this is just a bribe. This is corruption. And even my driver, she is a businesswoman in Dushanbe and a mature believer. And she said, well, he has no choice. The traffic officer's salary in Dushanbe is $70 a month. The salary for a traffic officer in Dushanbe is $70 per month. The average rent for an apartment in Dushanbe is $300 per month. So your rent is $300, your salary is $70. That's because the government expects that you will be on the road flagging down cars, demanding on-the-spot fines. It's good for the government because they get constant police presence on the roads. And it's the only way he could possibly support a family. That's the kind of corruption that just infects the systems of the world. 
In those kinds of systems, it's not the meek who are blessed. It's, it's the assertive. It's the aggressive. It's the corrupt. But in the kingdom, in the way that Jesus is transforming the world, one day it will be true that you do not have to be corrupt to get ahead. And we can be a people right now who demonstrate that reality among ourselves. And that's the nature of the church, to demonstrate the kingdom. The church is not the kingdom, but the church can demonstrate the values of the kingdom, to love the way that Jesus instructs us to love, to forgive the way that Jesus instructs us to forgive, to be people of character, patience, comfort, valuing even the meek. Jesus continues here. If those first three, they are conditions despite which we experience blessedness in the kingdom. These next four are positive attributes that are underappreciated in the world. Those first three, they're conditions despite which a person can be blessed in the kingdom. But these next four, these are positive things that are underappreciated in the world. So, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The world has no way of satisfying that hunger. If what you want is righteousness, that is, right living and justice, for things to be as they should be, for corruption to be undone, for um, moral purity, if that's what you're looking for, you will be unsatisfied in the world. That's not the regular way the world works. The world can't fulfill that hunger, but the kingdom can. And in the kingdom, you will be satisfied if you are the kind of person who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. This is a really, you know, the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus' teaching, it is subtle. That subtlety sometimes is underappreciated in the church, but it is subtle. Jesus' wisdom is subtle. One of the things that I have discovered in my own spiritual life that has changed the way that I understand my discipleship, my transformation toward Christ-likeness, it is this. To the degree that my longings can be transformed so that I can want what God wants me to want, that is the degree to which I can experience satisfaction in this life. If my longings can be what God wants me to want, how I was designed to live, how the kingdom is expected to work, then I can experience depth of satisfaction in this life. Because I want what God wants me to want, and the kingdom has all of it. I have everything I need to live that way, to be satisfied by Jesus' way of living. And the Spirit's work in me is to transform my longings. That's what the Spirit is doing in you. Spirit's job in you is not to give you the tingles, to give us powerful worship experiences, although there's nothing wrong with those things. Spirit's job is to transform you toward Christ-likeness by changing your desires so that we can want what God wants us to want. That's repentance. That's 
what it means to become a disciple of Jesus. There's so many areas of my life where I genuinely, really, I don't want what God wants me to want. I don't. So many areas of my life where the best that I can do is to want to want what God wants me to want. Can you hear that? You see the difference there? Sometimes the best that I could do is to want to want what God wants me to want. But as my heart gets pushed toward Christ-likeness, being more like Jesus, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, there is satisfaction. There is genuine satisfaction. Not by the world's standards, but in the kingdom. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Again, a positive thing that the world underappreciates. Mercy is not valued much in the regular way the world works. It does not value the merciful. When somebody does something wrong, we have a thousand ways of letting everyone know it. Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, news reports and 24-7 coverage. Look what he did! There's not a lot of value in mercy out there in the world. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. In the kingdom, mercy is a value. The world doesn't know what to do with mercy. But here among you, you should know mercy. You should know what to do with it. You should be so filled with it that it comes out of you. This is a regular theme of Jesus. He will keep coming back to this over and over in the Lord's Prayer, right after the Lord's Prayer. Matthew 18, in, in, the, final, in the, the second to last sermon of Jesus in Matthew 18, the, the parable of the unmerciful servant is all about this. You should be a people that knows mercy. To receive mercy from God and for mercy to flow generously out of you. That should be a characteristic of God's people. It's not valued out there in the world. But it's what God wants. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God's sincerity. Having right motives. When I described in the children's talk about doing what is right because it is right, not doing what is right when it will benefit me, but doing what is right because it is right, that's pure in heart. The world doesn't have any place for that. You know, if you stand in line in any bureaucratic office in this country, and I'm very grateful for this opportunity to live in this country, but it's the nature of bureaucracy. A bureaucrat's job is often to make you think that, make you feel like he's doing you a favor, when in reality they are trying to get something from you. That's the way the world works. Make you feel like I'm doing you a favor, really, I'm trying to get something from you. That's the way the world works. But in the kingdom, 
Blessed are the pure in heart. Can I move toward right motives, toward purity, to do what is right because it is right? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And this emphasizes Jesus' message here, emphasizes that faith, that coming to God, he is in the process of changing us, of transforming our heart. We, we need to be people of pure hearts. We want to be in faith, pursuing God, seeking God, and it will be rewarded. The world has nothing to reward a person who is pure of heart. But in the kingdom, you will be rewarded with God himself. He is your reward. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Again, the world has very little place for peacemakers. It's people who can stir up conflict who are going to get ahead. It's people who can manage to benefit from conflict who will get ahead. And then there's the people who just want to avoid conflict, stay out of the way. Because you don't want to risk anything. But the peacemaker, the person who will stand in the middle, the person who will try to absorb as Jesus absorbs conflict around him. That's where blessedness is in the kingdom. When I was a student at Biola University in, in 2000, in Israel, there had been a new intifada, a new season of conflict there in Jerusalem. And I had good Muslim and Jewish friends, and I knew people in those communities at my university, and I organized an event. I was working at the university at the time, and I organized an event, a, a dialogue panel of seven people called it Will There Be Peace in Jerusalem? There were Jews and Muslims and Christians on that panel. And um, it was covered by the news. Uh, and yeah, the news program did, it, did a, a radio interview the next day in a couple of the newspapers. And the reason it was covered by the news was uh, several media agencies had tried to host a panel like that and were unable to get Jews and Muslims in the room. While I was doing an interview with NPR that next morning, a, a caller, Palestinian girl, called in. She said, I was there at the event at Biola University last night, and I felt like I was listened to. She said, I felt like for the first time that I was heard, and people listened to, to my situation. And Isn't it interesting, she said, that it's the Christians that hosted it. That's the kingdom value of peacemaking. May Jesus get credit. When we stand in the center, when we are willing to risk ourselves to absorb conflict around us, to make peace, it doesn't have to be for a stadium full of people and a panel of seven scholars. It can be in your dorm room, in your family, on social media. to risk being a peacemaker, the value of that is not appreciated in the world. But it should be valued here. 
Number seven, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Notice how this is parallel to the first beatitude. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew and Jesus are making a connection, a parallel between those things. To be poor in spirit, perhaps in the first verse, also includes sad because of persecution. Poor in spirit because of persecution. But here, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When you do what is right because it is right, even when it's hard. I say that to my kids just about every night. Not so much now that they're older, but especially when they were younger, we'd say, I have a list of five things. I'd ask the kids, what's... Alev is shaking her head. She knows what I'm about to do. Alev, stand up for me for a second. Alev, what's the most important thing? Love God. And then? Love people. And then? Never give up. And then? Always be thankful. And then? Do the right thing because it is the right thing, even when it's hard. That's our list. If my kids are going to learn five things from me and only five things, may it be that five things. To do the right thing because it is the right thing, even when it's hard. Blessed are those who are persecuted. The world doesn't value persecution. It doesn't value, there's no reward in that in the world. It's just suffering. You avoid it at all costs out there in the world. But in the kingdom, we don't run from suffering. We run toward need. We run toward doing what is right, even when it will cost us. And the eighth, the final in the beatitude here, is connected to the seventh. It's very similar. And it reminds us of when we read Matthew, we can think of two different kinds of historical context. That is, we can imagine Jesus sitting on that hill and talking to that first crowd of believers gathered in front of him, but we can also imagine some 30 years later, Matthew composing this, applying the teaching of Jesus to the believers gathering in his day, to the churches that Matthew is teaching. And imagine those churches now some 30 years after Jesus, experiencing real persecution for their association with Jesus. And he writes, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It is hard to think of this as a source of blessedness, as a reason for rejoicing. In January, police came to raid my home and my business, they uh, accusing me of all kinds of things, including smuggling Bibles, and they confiscated all of the Bibles that I have. They went through my kids' drawers and opening up all of the cabinets. Well, my kids cried in the kitchen. 
Two days later, the um, local press produced an outrageously false, slanderous story about me. It's still in print, and it's circulated all over the place. And it claims all kinds of ridiculous things. I was taken in and interrogated and asked about ridiculous conspiracy theories. I did not feel blessed in those moments. I was not feeling the rejoicing. I was not feeling the blessedness. It's not because I was being interrogated or because there were police officers going through my children's drawers that I should experience blessedness. It is despite that that the kingdom gives us a way of living that can even endure that and be blessed. That it is a way of living so good, so real, with so genuine a satisfaction that will last forever, that it is even worth enduring that. And of course, my brothers and sisters have endured much more than that. But blessed are you when people insult you persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Took some time to rejoice and be glad after that. Great is your reward in heaven. Again, not primarily talking about what happens when you die, but talking about the way that God is renewing the whole world, that one day there will be a place for you in which all of the wrongs are made right. And he invites us into that kind of living, to live according to those values here and now, even at great cost. It is the blessed life. It is the good life. I'll end with this. These last few verses. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a candle, a lamp, and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand. It gives light to everyone in the house in the same way. Let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. If it is the blessed life that you are after, this is the kind of living you should choose. If you are looking for the genuinely good life, the genuinely blessed life, Jesus' way is not about grabbing your blessing, seizing your blessing, claiming, finagling, scheming for your blessing. It is about giving it away. Living according to the sacrificial example of Jesus to lay down your life, surrender, and sacrifice, generosity. To be a blessing. Is that why you're here this morning? It can be. Maybe you come to church because you feel like you need to check it off your list of religious obligations. Maybe you came because you think of it like a gas station. I'm empty, you gotta go grab some blessing. Those folks over there, they'll do some church for me. Do some preaching, do some worship. 
get myself all blessed up. Okay, but there is a better way. And there's a better reason to be here. Not in order to be blessed. But so that you can be a blessing. Not for what you will get when you come here. But because you can contribute to the life of this community. You can live this sacrificial way of living. Salt and light kind of living. To come and be a blessing. Can you do that when you come into these doors? Can you come here to be a blessing and not just to get a blessing? There's nothing wrong with being blessed. But can you come here first to be a blessing? Salt and light. You can do that. Not to use the brothers and sisters around you to get what you need but to be part of God's provision for them. Part of their experience of the blessedness of the kingdom. Can you come and be a blessing? That is the better way. That's the way of Jesus. Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, they are a, an invitation into the blessedness of the kingdom, a kind of living which is good in ways that the world cannot understand. I pray that God would open up our hearts to understand it, give us the power to live it, even at great cost.